would you like would, would one of you like to reply or comment on this or we can go to the next uh, other questions comments yeah go ahead um, as uh, European students and as European researchers, um, I believe that our first responsibility is to insist on the fact that the best opportunities are given for our Palestinian colleagues to express their ideas the more freely and to uh, express them publicly and say what they have to say about their own society. I don't believe it is my place as the representative of the former colonizing state of Lebanon to say to uh, anyone in the Middle East what they should do and what they should say about their own society. Okay, thank you, Alex. Um, maybe we can take one more question. Yes, okay. Um, I have a question regarding um, collecting data in, in a situation like the Syria crisis, uh, where there were, in particular, I'm asking about the Palestinian refugees from Syria. Uh, in the smaller context and a larger context, the Syrians from Syria. Uh, there was a lot of money, as far as I know, that was uh, put towards creating databases uh, of information about the refugees. Um, I would like your opinion about how, as far as you know, how useful that was, how negative that was, and how positive, if, any, if there is any, any positive in that. Because my concern is, although it would seem like the most logical thing to collect data and, and, and collect it in a database that is easily accessible for NGOs, for donors, etc., there was a lot of um, uh, reticence about sharing information both from NGOs and from individuals for many reasons that, uh, that are beyond the immediate, the immediate of the obvious, such as you know, political, political issues, etc., etc. So I would like your input, both your inputs, um, on this issue, if possible. Well, I'm very skeptical and, and, and I think uh, very critical of, of these. Uh, on one hand, it's clear you can't manage an emergency situation without collecting data because you need to know uh, what you are actually dealing with, uh, quantity, sizes, needs, etc. At the same time, um, as, as you uh, also pointed out, that, that data is collected with uh, certain strategic imperatives. They bring their own categories to bear on, on, on the situations they are trying to map. So they, they, they already start from a very um, fragmented and highly selective starting point of what they actually want to see, uh, which, which uh, from, from the very start removes any other interests uh, from the actual data uh, image that, that is generated in, in, in the context. And on top of that, the fact that um, most of the time, uh, those whose, whose information is collected never have any say and control over how this information is used and what kind of information should be collected in the first place makes it a very critical, uh, I call it, uh, it, it simply reinforces mechanisms of dispossession that we have seen over and over again where people lose uh, gradually control over their lives because once you're stuck in such a database, like I said, you, your life becomes scalable in all sorts of directions and ways according to, to strategic agenda set elsewhere and outside the immediate context of your needs. And so I think uh, in the future it, it should be actually mandatory 
I'm, I'm actually arguing for, for uh, a new code of obligation um, of, of um, NGOs and welfare organizations and anyone in, involved in such emergency uh, operations um, to really define a clear-cut, transparent and, and uh, knowledge politics um, that grants those populations uh, to, which, to whom they cater effective control over the not, not, not only what kind of knowledge is, is generated about them, but how it is used, and that it also involves an e effective training, skills training, for these populations themselves to work with the data themselves. Uh, because uh, you certainly want, you depend on, on resources uh, that UNHCR and whoever gives you. At the same time, it's clear they never fully meet your needs. But why should you be left out of actually making productive use of this knowledge and, and kind of start using it uh, to, to make things better in your immediate context? Uh, so I think there's a lot uh, to be done here still. Yeah. Particularly with local Well, what kind of problems do you need? Because my experience in Lyadaradev was actually devastating. You had these cluster meetings, blown up uh, huge administrative apparatuses, and yet there's the, the, the fact that NGOs compete for donor money is prevents uh, an open and transparent knowledge sharing. Uh, files are transferred even at night times from one hotel room to the next to kind of check is he claiming a furniture check he has already received from another NGO you know it's really down to this level and it sounds very uh, and, and I think this needs to be stopped yeah I'm, I'm interested to, to understand the mechanism of stopping it because it is very complicated what yeah, it's and, and, and it's highly problematic because what you see right now is this open data, right? Uh, it has become the new buzzword for kind of accountability and transparency in the world of NGOs and international organizations. Yeah, what is labeled as open data has nothing to do with open and unlimited access to data generated by the World Bank all the way to UNRWA, and, and UNRWA is actually not participating in the first place. Uh, but it's, um, first of all, it's aggregate data. It's already what they have compiled as a statistical output of their, of their data resources. And then again, according to criteria they themselves set, right? So it's not, no one is accountable to anyone. And what you end up facing is that, uh, that local populations are again conscripted into using this information to see has the money uh, the World Bank has spent somewhere really gone to this particular village or not. So you are conscripted again in another mechanism of policing rather than having information available to foster your own interest in your own community. So I think uh, it, should, it, it cannot be on the level of voluntary commitments where it is now it needs to be built into the legal mandate and legal obligations of international organizations. Uh, to they are not private entities. They are financed with, uh, with, with public money. And this means, uh, the U.S. has a good model here, knowledge generated with public money is in the public domain. It cannot be held in, in closed uh, uh, closets. It, I'm talking this conversation, but if I may, because I found this very interesting, um, I'm really more concerned with the data that is the, the domain of the local NGOs that they refuse to share with the international NGOs. Ah, so it's okay. not a matter of the, the INGOs collecting data. Ah, okay. It's the locals. In case of the local NGOs, they sharing data among themselves and with uh, INGOs and other UN. And what prevents them from sharing competition well, for donor money? Uh, or? The 
competition you yeah. talked about is, is one aspect. Also, the other aspect which I find is very interesting is the fear that this data is going to be used against the very refugees that are supposed to be helping. Mm -hmm. And that's a very valid concern. And, and so this should be factored into any any kind of mechanism or system that, um, that tries to, to uh, legalize or, or put a framework. And, yeah, and at the same time, they're easily used as, ex as an excuse for each other. You know, people in a patronizing manner sitting up on vital knowledge, uh, claiming to protect the interests of the refugees, when in fact just claiming proprietary claims that are completely inappropriate. Yeah, I find balance. Huge problem. Yeah. Okay, thank you both, Alex and Monica. And um, we have a half hour break right now. Thank you all. Thank I think uh, like everybody knows uh, here who Rosemary is. Um, I don't want to introduce her formal <laughs> position because so I think for most of us she is that committed <laughs> uh, scholar and I think um, anyone who wants to study or talk about Palestinian refugees or issues around uh, committed scholarship has to refer <laughs> uh, to Rosemary's work. Um, um, I think, uh, I don't know what else to say, it's really hard to introduce a friend <laughs> and, uh, you know, and uh, an idol scholar. We all we all want to be like her, but it is really hard to. You can all go better. <laughs> no, can, we can't compete. So, um, I think Rosemary is going to talk about um, the economic entanglements of Palestinian refugee camps. So, it's a, I think it's a reflection back on how we need to fill a gap in the research of refugees in Lebanon. Sorry. <laughs> thanks to Maysoon <laughs> and thanks to the Institute for inviting me to speak. Uh, I begin from the position that it is ethically and politically necessary that Palestinian refugee camps should remain in place until a just settlement has been achieved. And in an extension of this position, I hold that, that national institutions have an ethical and political obligation to advocate on behalf of camp populations. For example, by disseminating information about the Nakba, the hardships camp people suffer, and the resistances they put up. I also hold that national institutions are ethically and politically obliged to do whatever can be done to normalize life in camps, normalize in inverted commas, for example, through enriching cultural resources, establishing libraries, or through engaged research. This position is implicitly critical of the national leadership, both in its PLO and national authority forms, since these bodies have always kept a certain distance between themselves and the camps. This has been done in the case of the political leadership through emphasizing the international community's primary responsibility for the upkeep and servicing of the camps, and by the national cultural institutions through catering mainly to a foreign public in their research and publishing. This distancing was the case even between 1970 and 1980 when the PLO exercised direct control over most of the camps in Lebanon 
policing them, recruiting members into the resistance organizations, forming local popular, popular committees that represented and still represent the parties formed at that time, and offering many kinds of social service and financial inflow, flow, salaries, compensation for damage, indemnities for the families of men killed in action, scholarships, and so on. Within the PLO's organigram, the camps came under the control of popular organizations and from there under the executive committee. In popular memory, these bodies did less than they might have done to change material or cultural conditions in the camps. During the years 1973 to 1975, I was doing fieldwork in Burijil Barajni camp and was exposed to views of the resistance movement that were mainly ones of praise, loyalty and identification but that included criticism of shortcomings. There were indemnities for war damage and people were free to upgrade their homes, but there was a very little improvement of public facilities such as waste disposal, disposal, water distribution or air raid shelter building. NGOs linked to resistance factions extended services in fields of health, education and culture, but competition overlap and inadequate training weakened the impact of these efforts. Since Oslo, the national authorities further reduced concern for camps outside the West Bank. This is manifested politically in the authorities' surrender of the right to return, documented in the WikiLeaks papers. This connection is manifested concretely in the cutting off of or reduction of financial support to camp populations outside the West Bank. Some payments, scholarships, indemnities for widows, home repair, did continue to be considered rights and were administered by the PLO until the opening of the authority embassy in Beirut in 2011. At that point, the PLO was phased out and rights were rephrased as needs. For example, the PLO program to support Palestinian students was replaced by the Mahmoud Abbas Fund and regarded as charity effectively depoliticizing it. Critics of the national leadership say that all PLO support passes through a better filter, including indemnities from martyrs' families, and that these payments augment the rank of better martyrs in comparison with others. I note here that a women's campaign was successfully raised against this practice, an action that exemplifies women's economic and political agency. And I didn't have the time, unfortunately, to go and listen to the people who conducted this campaign. But before I publish this paper, I want to do that and add that story. Red Crescent hospitals still exist in some camps and are important because one, UNRWA doesn't run hospitals. Two, Palestinian refugees are excluded from social security. And three, because Lebanon's private medical system is extremely costly. But RC hospitals are said to be barely operational and they depend on gifts for equipment, like, for instance, kidney dialysis. The salaries of Red Crescent doctors and nurses are indeed paid by the PLO PNA, with the positive effect of lowering the costs of medical care for people in camps, but most other forms of PLO support, for example, scholarships, subventions to popular committees and NGOs, home repair indemnities, have been reduced or terminated. Though this disconnection has been implemented gradually so as not to totally destroy the leadership's influence outside the West Bank. The phasing out of financial support for camp populations outside occupied Palestine 
falls within the policy of de-development analysed by Sarah Roy in relation to Gaza and applicable to the Palestinian people at large. Camps are the targets of occasional distributions by Islamic political parties and charities and as I noted earlier by the PLO, the PMA. Uh, but, it's, but, but, but this latter role is one that owns it neither loyalty nor respect. Diana Allen quotes a one-time PLO fighter, Abu Yusuf, who in order to receive a monthly stipend of $26 would have to attend monthly fetter meetings in Ein Helwood camp. He expresses his disgust in words that point to a historically formed Palestinian life skill. Quote, We have become experts in survival. We can buy aid clothes for three children with $50 or cook a meal on a gas stove with a single flame. These words suggest how closely Palestinian resistance to political erasure is welded to and embodied in economic self-denial. One of the curious facts about camp economies is the degree of stratification found in them in the wide gap separating poorest from better-off households. Fafo's economic and social survey carried out in 1999 found that Quote, the poorest decile accounts for only 1% of all incomes, whereas the upper decile earns 32% of all incomes, while the upper two deciles together account for half of all incomes earned. This income gap is gendered in the sense that, quote, while a total of 18% of households in camps and gatherings have a female head, they account for 43% and 26% in the lowest and next lowest income categories, respectively. Given that all Palestinians with refugee ID cards face the same labour market conditions and the same obstacles to migration, the size of this gap calls for explanation. But because surveys are synchronic, they cannot tell us about causes and processes. A diachronic investigation, i.e. one over time, goes back into the history of households, poor households, would be useful in guiding interventions aimed at equalisation. Histories of the poorest families, probably for the most part female-headed, would be valuable in pinpointing obstacles to women exercising economic agency in any form. The proportion of female-headed households among the poorest two decades is higher at... uh, Sorry, it's a repetition here that I haven't ironed out. I note here that the (coughs) existence in camps of of exceptional poverty supports their representation in hostile Lebanese media as nests of delinquency and potential criminality, a reputation that puts pressure on the better off to separate themselves by moving out. Given the November 2012 admission of the National Authority to the UN General Assembly as a non-member observer state, it is an open question how long the international community will continue to fill the responsibility towards Palestinians that it undertook in 1947 with the UN Partition Conference and in 1948 with the creation, creation of the refugee problem. In a context of the national leadership's weakening resistance to US and Israeli political and economic pressures, the camps and their inhabitants form a, a kind of last-ditch obstacle to erasing the Nekba. Yet it is an obstacle that the international community, mobilised by its most powerful members, 
might find a way to dissolve in the framework of national authority territorialization, i.e. you've got your state in West Bank, that's it, everything else is off the agenda. As global political and economic frameworks shift, so does the balance of arguments in the international arena for and against maintaining refugee camps. Indeed, as ethnographer Petit points out, the transformation of the Palestinian camps into foci of political mobilization has sharpened international deciders against this form of dealing with refugees. In the discussion, their discussion, uh, discussions of the camps, most interested parties, whether they're host government officials, diplomats, Palestinian or other scholars, tend to assume that UNRWA will always be there to provide the main economic basis on which the reproduction of camps depends. Yet is this assumption justified? UNRWA has always suffered budgetary crisis, but in 2015 this reached a peak as the agency faced a deficit of more than 100 million, the largest in its history. Since early 2015, evidence is accumulating that UNRWA is facing increasing difficulty in meeting its existing commitments, let alone implementing the improvements it has promised, it has promised in the fields of education and health. In August 2015, UNRWA's Commissioner General voiced fears that schools would not be able to open, causing panic waves across the region. The deficit showed up rapidly in Lebanon in relation to medical expenditures, setting off a wave of demonstrations. In January 2016, a Palestinian patient, unable to obtain treatment for thalassemia, set himself on fire. The Council of Palestinian Human Rights Organization presented UNRWA's funding crisis as, quote, a dangerous policy precedent insofar as UNRWA is able gradually to divest itself of its responsibility towards those who, to whom it is mandated to provide services. In Lebanon, a recent AUB UNRWA study of economic and social conditions in the camps states unequivocally that if, quote, UNRWA is not present in Lebanon, overall poverty among refugees would create, increase by 14% and extreme poverty would be multiplied by three. And this is a very dire estimate given that Palestinians, Palestinian refugees in Lebanon already show the highest pro proportion of hardship of all UNRWA fields while 9 out of 10 households are estimated to live below the poverty level. A lowering of camp household income in Lebanon cannot be in compensated for by increased employment because Lebanese legal constraints close all but unskilled levels of the labour market to Palestinians. Nor can it be raised through migration since there are few countries that grant entry to Palestinian refugees from Lebanon. Even when they manage to leave, usually clandestinely, Employment in countries of second refuge is not guaranteed, and many migrants spend long periods in internment camps. Further, a general lowering of household income would deplete resources for the financing of self-employment and domestic production. Diminution of UNRWA's budget would undoubtedly affect the two items among its social services that are most important to refugees, i.e. health and education. When trying to assess the stability of the permanence of the camps, UNRWA and PLO are not the only economic factors to take into consideration. We need also to embrace the effects on them of capitalism. 
the camps exist in a region where weak states have yielded to global forces that promote de-development and high rates of unemployment. Yet, simultaneously, capitalism promotes middle-class life ambitions and is thus liable to fragment marginal, economically disenfranchised communities. Though community fragmentation has been more studied in Latin America than in the Arab East, there is, in fact, an exceptional study on the Mashrik region that gives us leads in thinking about capitalism in Palestinian camps. This is Idris Khalid's Economic Determinants of Social Change in the Bad Palestinian Communities, an AUBMA thesis dated 1975. Khalid examines the impact of capitalism on social structure in rural communities in Palestine, Lebanon, Syria and Iraq, using an exceptional number of village studies carried out in the early and mid-20th century. Though he uses the term market economy rather than capitalism, his method of collating studies of economic change with studies of social change at the village level offers a clear view of capitalist impact. On the economic side of the equation, he lists, one, the penetration of European capital, production for the market instead of the subsistence, the formation of larger states, the linking of villages to cities, monetization, destruction of local industry and crafts, the rise of a rural middle class, occupational differentiation, and the phasing out of communal land tenure, or mesha. Predominant as the land tenure system in the whole of the region except Lebanon until well into the 20th century, mesha tenure tends to produce equality, cooperation in agricultural production, and settlement of conflict within the community. The eradication of Mesha, to quote Haredi, ultimately led to the wholesale dispossession of most of the peasantry. The studies of social change in rural communities shows the correlates of the market economy, i.e. growing inequality of income, decline in agricultural cooperation, changes in habitat, lifestyle, consumption, decline in clan endogamous marriages, and an increased resort to courts to settle conflicts. The wealthiest families show a tendency to separate from their kin-based haras and to create new residential quarters. The wealthier families also tend to intermarry, overriding customs of clan and dogamy. The senior men frequently connect to the state, furthering economic and class differentiation. Uh, these trends appear to hold true across Palestine, Lebanon, Syria and Iraq. And while 70 year, five years separate the villages of Khalid's study from the refugee camps today, yet these correlations between the economic and the social are still suggested. The question I raise here is, how do camp communities hold together, if indeed they do, in the face of the mar market's powerful fragmenting forces? What factors that surveys do not account for enable camps to reproduce themselves over time as communities that stamp identities and politics? What values and practices of communality survive in them from early, earlier periods? We know some of the means that have enabled camp communities in the past to withstand capitalist fragmentation. Besides UNRWA's basic inputs, people work from the beginning, there were and are family and village funds, local markets, manufacture and trade, migration networks, diaspora transfers, and zikat, charity. In all of these, the national, 
social, cultural and economic are, it seems to me, inseparable. Thus, research focused on these practices and especially on people's perceptions of their relevance would offer a more realistic picture on which to base support interventions, I mean money support or economic support interventions, than is available today. (coughs) An economic ethnography of a Palestinian camp would examine all kinds of value that exist beyond salaries and wages. I'm speaking here of domestic production and home-based trade, savings associations and credit schemes, loans, services exchanged rather than paid for, and what we may term indigenous charity. All of these are based on personal relations fostered through camp proximity and the sharing of its hardships, exclusions, atmosphere and intimacy. In her ethnography of Shatila camp, Diana Allen depicts a small shop credit system set up by Fatima, a woman without local family connections. Daily life familiarity with customers is essential to Fatima in decisions regarding advancing credit. You have to have an idea of what people earn and what they spend before you decide how much credit to give, she says. Camp proximity facilitates such knowledge and thus the circulation of loans of money, goods, equipment, gifts and above all, information so crucial in marginal communities. A question we might pose is how much do expectations and experiences of such exchanges contribute to decisions to stay in camp communities rather than to leave them? And when people rent a 